Kate Casey is a comedian, an author, and host to one of the top-rated TV podcasts, Reality Life with Kate Casey. She's even been called the Diane Sawyer of unscripted television. While most people are famous and then decide to start a podcast, Kate has become famous because she started a podcast. Perhaps even more impressive than her 20 plus million downloads is the fact that she owes it all to her own drive, grit, and determination. You see, she's a one-woman band and has made her success a reality because of grinding and doing what it takes to find outstanding guests and get her show noticed by some of the top publications on the planet. In this episode, we talk about her experience in PR and how it played a role in her success. We learn why and how she started her show five years ago. She shares her approach to landing high-profile guests. She talks about how she handles interviews, and she shares what she does to promote her show so it gets noticed. As you can tell, I'm pretty excited about this one, and I'm beyond impressed by everything that Kate has accomplished. Because of this, I'm so excited to share her story with you, so let's jump straight in to the conversation. Kate Casey, welcome to For the Love of Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Oh, I'm excited to dive in. And my first question is this. What role did General Hospital play in your life as a child? And how has it helped to <laughs> create the person that you are today, both in your love of TV and in yeah. stories in general of people? Well, General Hospital and Real World probably were the most, were the gateway drug to TV and reality TV. My mom let me watch a prodigious amount of television as a child. And some would say that was horrible parenting. I like to say that it opened me up to a whole new exciting world. And I always felt like I had something to talk about with people. I've always been fascinated by people. When I was a little girl, I used to sit in my mom's bedroom and look through her 1963 high school yearbook at Radnor High School and ask over and over about the people in her yearbook. And even grade, she didn't even know anybody. It was a small enough town where I, you know, I would just go through and say, well, tell me about this person and what street did they live on and who are they married to and what were their children's names? And when you went back for the reunion, were they still together and where do they live now? And I've just been fascinated by people my whole life. So that compounded with the act of watching television. I was, it's no surprise to anybody that I um, am an extrovert, but also that I'm in a business where I get to be consumed by other people's life stories. Mm. What do you think the root is? If you were to go back like as early as possible, where did that mm-hmm. love of people come from? I mean, did it clearly you watched a lot of TV. So is that the root or is there something else in addition to that? Well, I think I'm innately a very curious person. I think part of that is just genetics but uh, or your DNA. But my parents are both very interesting and interested people. My mom would be the mom at the grocery store who, were, who would be talking to you about the election and the checkout line and be there for a long time. And my dad is somebody who's really, who gets caught up in conversations with people. So I come from people that are get locked into someone's life and don't let people go. 
And I think that as I got older, I went to this school for underprivileged children as a high school kid from 9th through 12th, it's a K through 12 school, but I was there 9th through 12th. And I got to live in a student home with girls from every race, creed, demographic. So I'm built to be interested in people. And then I think a series of life experiences have only increased that interest. I studied political science and that was great too. And in fact, the one person in the world that seems to have this weird, it's like I'm a savant for remembering people's details. The only other person I've ever read about that seems to have it is Bill Clinton. And I've looked it up. The University of California in Irvine has a specialty on memory Mm. and Basically, Bill Clinton and I have this weird thing. It's like a superior memory for information about people and details. So I could have someone, a conversation with somebody on the street and then 10 years later see them and remember what their name was, the conversation that we had, and details about it. So I think I have an unusual ability. And then because I love television, I sort of figured out a way to get paid for what I like to, to do and my unique specialty. But that said, like before I became a podcaster, I worked as a media consultant for global law firms. And I could remember email addresses off the top of my head easily, or I could remember the beat reporter and the conversations that we had and what the, the kind of sources that they're typically looking for. So I think that I just have a really unusual memory that it's quite unusual. And I think one of my kids has it. My dad has it. I have it. And my kid, uh, one of my kids has it, but it's not exactly like mine, but it's like that superior memory with their own unique thing. But the only person I've ever read about that has my exact thing is President Clinton. And in fact, when I was in college, I was a keynote speaker at a, not keynote, sorry, I, I was a speaker, well, one of the top speakers at this Democratic caucus event, and it was on C-SPAN, and I got a chance to introduce President Clinton. No way. And as I turned around, I was an intern at the time for pre, uh, for Vice President Al Gore. I was in college, and my mom's sitting in the front row, and it's, I see Sam Donaldson in the back. By the way, that was the first time I realized I was a really good public speaker, because I did not have an ounce of me that was scared at all. And I was like 20 years old and I introduced the president of the United States. So anyway, I introduced him and then I turned around and then I said to him, you know, you and I have the same freaky memory. So then when the whole event was done, he's supposed to go off stage with the secret service. And he turned to me and said, wanted to hear more about my memory thing. So we just chatted about it. And then my, he, my mom came up and we were chatting about that and about student loans or something. The unfortunate thing was it was around the time of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So in the papers the next day, all it said was a young woman about the age of Monica Lewinsky. I was like, Uh, what? (laughs) Really? Yeah. But anyway, long story short. That's my connection with Bill Clinton. Although I was his intern, I used to go in the White House. Mm-hmm. I was the one who did the clips for the president. So I would go into this room in the old executive building and it would be just like stacks and stacks of newspapers. Obviously now a kids can you just copy and paste or sure. Lexis Nexus or something. But I had to go and actually cut the newspapers and make copies of it and compile it into a thing. And I would go at by the time it was done, it was five forty-five, six in the morning. I would go and drop off the stock eclipse in the Oval Office to President Clinton. Wow! And then I would go back. Yeah. Well, what? Okay, so I, I want to get. There's so much I want to get into. So <laughs> you're a poli sci major. 
And mm-hmm. at one point you wanted to run for office. Where did that, believe it? where did that dream go? Will it ever come back potentially? Mm, okay. So I was an unusual child. I feel like this is the name of my book. I was an unusual child. I have always loved like three things, sports, comedy, and news. And I was the kind of kid that would read Newsweek, like nerdy. And I was fascinated by politics because I love news. So I just always thought I'm going to go to Washington. And my mom was like a feminist and talked all the time about social justice stuff. So I grew up in a house where it was required of you to know what was going on in the world. That's what we talked about at the dinner table. And she took me to go vote with her. And I got to the decision of what I want to study in school. It was like a no brainer for me because I knew I wanted to go to DC. So I studied political science and I got a chance to work on all these campaigns. And then as you leave school and you get your first job, I was trying to figure out how to make money and work in politics. And I realized it's really hard to make money in politics unless you've been in the industry for a long time and you're a lobbyist or you in a consultancy firm. So I started working for a PR firm that represented former senators that had gone back to their law firm. And that's how I got into media consulting for law firms. But I don't know, I just kind of felt like, well, first of all, when I was an intern at the White House, I was really frustrated because I was a kid who came from no, I didn't come from any money, no connections. And a lot of the interns, I remember they could go to eat lunch at the Hay Adams and then come back late. And when they're like suits that their parents bought you. And it just felt like at the time, there's no room for me in politics because I don't have a ton of money. I don't have a lot of connections and I'm sort of working from the ground up. Obviously I would, you know, give a different speech to somebody who is in the same position, but at the time, I just felt like, can I make a dent en- enough quickly? And am I ever going to make money? And then I got this great job. And that just kind of pulled me into a different trajectory. I don't know if I could run for office. But I certainly think I'd be a good coach for somebody who wanted to run for office or be there like, not their chief of staff, but the person they call to go, is this person an asshole? And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is how you deal with it. So I don't know. I, I also think that if I did, I had a great prep ground because I was a young woman working in the legal field as a media consultant for law firms. And it was a bunch of men who were between the ages of like 50 and 70. And I really developed a thick skin. And I think that that if you, you know, Lance Armstrong once said, if you want to run for office, it's like taking a bath in the center of town. And it, it takes a quite a bit of thick skin and tenacity to withstand what comes if you run for office. So if I did, I, you know, maybe in a little bit, but I don't know. I question whether or not I would have the ability to navigate in these recent times, not keeping my mouth shut. And I think you have to, in in some ways, to be like a successful politician right now. Like I just would be like, for example, I would do the press conference and I'd go, you guys know this is bullshit, right? But I think that's what will work. I think (laughs) your humor, actually, what I'm thinking about as you're talking is I think your humor and your ability to say what's on your mind and say what other people want to say but are afraid to say will allow you to stand out for the same reason maybe <laughs> others I'm not going to mention any names but others have seen success in politics because I think people are yeah. tired of uh, of safe politics but but you never yeah. Okay so let's go back to childhood one, Okay one more time so and then and then we'll flash forward to you getting started with your podcast so if your childhood was a reality show who would be the main characters and why I don't know. There's so many wacky characters. It's hard to I mean, I feel like I'm if there was a reality show, I would be almost like the narrator. I'm the straight like the straight one, like looking at the camera in an office style show where it's like 
Look at these weirdos. Um, you're the most normal of all of them is what you're saying, basically. Oh, for sure. And I still am. I'm yeah. the only one. And like I, th- I had a therapist one time that said, why are you not a crackhead? And I was like, it's a good question. Yeah, I just came from like a really weird, very dysfunctional family. Yeah, I was always the straight one. So it probably be me. Uh, my sister is quite funny, but she's almost like a character from Gilligan's Island. She's like Mrs. Howell. <laughs> where she just walks into a room with like all this jewelry on and you're like, where did you come from? My family's wacky. But then uh, the greatest thing about getting older is that you realize so are everybody else's family. And that was the great thing when I went to that school, Milton Hershey School, because I had grown up feeling so embarrassed by my own family. And I, I, t- I was like, a sh- like, I felt shame. But then you, I went there and I realized there's so many other people that have odd family dynamics or horrible family dynamics. And I felt less shame, like, oh, I'm not alone in the world. And I went back to speak at that school in November of last year. And I looked out into a sea of kids who have absolutely been from the wrong door of the opportunity like I was. And I was telling them, like, lean into the fact that your family's weird. Lean into the fact that you didn't get the, you know, you, you haven't been given every opportunity in the world because you are going to be infinitely more creative, more, you're going to be a much more of a hustler, you're going to be more well respected if people know from w- where you came from. So these are good things. These are good things to not always come from, you know, the, the best opportunities. And one of the things that I know stands out from that experience for you is the diversity, right? So right. clearly mm-hmm. that, that played a role. What do you think, as you reflect back, I mean, did you realize at the time just how impactful it, it was to be in that environment coming from where you were? Because it was a boarding school, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, I did. Oh, the boarding school is created by Milton Hershey. He was the chocolate magnet. He and his wife tried desperately to have children of their own. He was an only child and his parents passed away. And then his wife passed away. But before she passed away, because they were unable to have children, they decided to create a school for orphaned and single parent children that the school changed the deed of trust in 1977 to admit girls. But In the early 1910s, when he was asked by the New York Times, what do you intend to do with your massive chocolate fortune? He said, the heirs of my fortune are the students of the Hershey Industrial School, now called the Milton Hershey School. So it's K through 12. It's now approximately, I think, 1,800 students, K through 12, and you live there. And it's a free tuition. So every time you get a chocolate bar, you're basically giving the opportunity for a, a disadvantaged or a child from a disadvantaged background to get a free education. So I was 14 and my mom dropped me off. She left and I opened the doors to a student home, which had, it was like a ranch style house with 16 girls and a set of house parents and they had their own wing. And then we all had roommates and we had chores to do every day. And they all, you're walking into a house and we all lived in little houses like that. You walk into a house where there, for me, there were a few girls that looked like me. I mean, I went from a suburban white town, predominantly white town, to a student home filled with girls who looked totally different than me. So it was extremely powerful as a 14-year-old to see that. And I truly believe that it's only by living with someone do you really understand all the things that are actually make you similar. Mm. It was an incredibly moving experience. And then So for me, when I watched the real world on real world New York, I was like, well, that just like my high school. So I think for me, that show, like I just got a chance to talk to Julie from the real world first season. And we, 
we're like finishing each other's sentences because that unique experience that she had on television for three months, I had for four years at school. And those relationships that I have, much like Julie, are so they're like fa- like family based because they know me in a way that even, you know, my sister went there too, but she was four years older than me, but I have two half sisters and I don't feel connected to them at all. But I feel like the girls that I lived in a student home with or my classmates, because it was co-ed school that I went to school with, I'm so deeply bonded to them because we have this unique life experience that I think really, we have a unique lens into the world because we see past what a lot of people can't because we had an opportunity to live together and have a shared experience. And also that translating the way I parent, mm. we talk a lot about this on my show that, you know, my kids, they go to an international baccalaureate school, which is a curriculum that's based in being a global citizen. So they're learning all year long about other cultures and other races. And, you know, in the California school system, the second grade, you learn about American heroes, but in an IB school, it's like, Malala Yousaf and Gandhi and like all these people from around the world and they come home and they're like, you know, I learned about the Persian New Year. But also it's more than that. I mean, I mean, this seems like a nuance, a a very small thing, but I have five kids. I have four daughters. They, I made sure that they have dolls that are of different Mm. races. Our bookshelves are filled with books from different stories from around the world with different children who look different because those small things really kind of set a precedent for how they see themselves in the world. I don't think I would have had that unique lens and push if I had not gone to the Milton Hershey school. Wow. There's so many layers to that because now looking forward or looking past into the, your your next step as you went into college and you had aspirations of going into politics, but then you sort of stumbled your way into media and PR consulting, had a 17 plus year career there. Let's go back to 2016, September 2016 and the months preceding that before you started your show. What was going through your mind? Like why the podcast? Why a podcast about, and I know originally your, your vision was to like really find these characters from these stories. Right. So like, what was going through your mind? Like, why did you create the show to begin with? And maybe walk us through your original vision. So once I started having children, I'm a person who needs a lot. I, I need to have a lot going on. I just have to have a lot going on. And so I had this PR firm. I also started taking classes at the Groundlings Theater in LA, improv comedy. And then I started this blog. This is when people actually read blogs. And it was recapping television and talking like a snarky kind of view of pop culture but also recapping television shows. And I would do, oh, I think they would call it like fan fiction now, where it's like I would review the episode of Real Housewives of Orange County, but but describe everybody in exaggerated terms and add conversations that didn't really happen. And um, I got a, a big following from it. And because of that, I was invited to do my friend Heather's podcast. And I said to her, you know, I have all this experience over years and years of interviewing attorneys and and I and and I started doing stand-up comedy and I just thought I would be really good at this, mm-hmm. but I love reality television. So I think what would be interesting, because I look at always look at reality t- TV in a different way. Like I was always looking at, at it from like a cultural anthropology perspective. So I said it would be fun if I could track down people that were on reality shows to find out how the show changed the trajectory of their life. So I met with the network that she was on, which is Wondery, which is a 
famous network and said, I have this idea for a show. And I gave them the whole outline of what I wanted to do, who I was going to ask, et cetera, et cetera. And because I had a background in PR, I think that they probably knew I wasn't a lunatic. They said, let's do it. And so then I started doing that and it's been almost five years, but it's been the best because I feel like all the things that I've been interested in, coupled with the jobs that I've had, the experience and like fine tuning my skill in interviewing and research, all that stuff kind of set me up to be really good at what I do now. And it's, it's a freaking great job because I get to watch an enormous amount of television yeah. and I get to talk to people that I watch a show. I think a lot of us or most people, they watch something, and but they still have questions after like, sure. well, what, what happened to that person? And wait, they didn't cover this part. So I feel like I'm the dessert for people. Because they watch something and then they're like, oh, Kate's going to get all the other questions that I needed answered, you know, done. So I feel like I can, I have closure on my TV watching experience. Or I think I've introduced a lot of people to fantastic shows or documentaries or docuseries that they would never have thought of. I mean, I get notes all the time from people that say, oh my gosh, you suggested this thing and I watched it with my husband or my brother and I just watched it and now we're going to tackle the next thing. So it's, it's been really fun. Yeah. So when you think back and you think, okay, you had this 17 year career that really laid the foundation. You mentioned a couple of things like research and interviewing and like the fact mm-hmm. that you had to talk to lawyers. What are some of the ways that that prepped you and for, like really gave you the foundation mm-hmm. to, to build your show off of? Well, uh, one thing in particular is that when you do media consulting for law firms, you really have to be working at a fast pace because you're trying, it's almost like a game where you're, you're reading the news every day and you're figuring out ways to get your attorney in front of a story so they, they can become the expert on something. So for example, I had an attorney who was a white collar crime defense attorney. So every day I'm looking for a story in the news that I can sync up where I can start calling press and say, I know you're going to be covering this trial. I want to put you in touch with this white collar crime defense attorney who can provide insight or the implications or blah, blah, blah. But I'm doing that for 16 different attorneys at one time. So then a story might pop up in the news and it's like, I need to be the first person to get to those reporters before somebody else who represents lawyers. So very fast moving, a different, like my job was like different every day. And that's very much like my show because I'm working against a TV schedule or streaming media schedule. So I have to be the first person to someone. So like the Tina Turner documentary came out on HBO. I want to be the first person to grab those directors to get even more scoop about behind the scenes of the show. It's very fast paced. And I think my brain works really well with that. I can really multitask very well. And I like the challenge of wanting to be the first person to the story. So I do think that that helped a lot. And also working with like asshole attorneys. I mean, I just have like a very thick skin. And I don't think I have zero fear when it comes to approaching somebody for an interview. I'm very confident because of working for so long, um, having my own firm and approaching attorneys and I think you have to be fearless. You have to have a huge amount of tenacity and confidence when you want to approach guests. So that helped tremendously. And I don't know, I just think I was always really good at being the first one on the job and the last to leave. Mm. I set myself from other shows because I just think I can outwork everybody. Yeah. And the the confidence piece is so vital, which I, I, 
I definitely see that. And just having known you for a very short time, your confidence is one of the things that stands out to me. And it's no surprise that you've articulated that in the way in which you have. And it, it makes sense that, you know, having that tenacity, having the confidence to approach anybody and, and the resilience to bounce back if you get a no or, you know, yeah. if you miss an opportunity. So what ways has your show evolved? Because obviously you started with yeah. one vision and you picked that <laughs> yeah. and, and Wondery was like, yeah, let's do this. How has it evolved since then? Because I know you have like sort of a three-part approach now and now you're doing docu-series and docu documentaries. So right. give a flavor of that. So when I first started it, I mean, that the one part that has not changed is I said to them, I want to structure my show like a television show with an opening and a closing and two guests. So kind of like I'm an audio Johnny Carson where I've got, I'm sitting at the couch and then someone comes out and then I, somebody else is sitting there. Not that the, the guests are listening to each other's interviews, but it's this like multi-guest approach so that people have like, this consistent kind of comfort that when they listen, they're going to hear me chat for a second in the beginning. I'm either going to tell a story or I'm going to suggest something for them to watch, a featured guest. And then I'm going to have someone from some pocket of the world review a show and maybe it's in their space or not, but they're getting an opening with information about a show. The featured guest is talking about a show. The second guest is talking about a show. And then at the end, I close it out. So you're getting an enormous amount of suggestions for things to watch. You're getting a window into someone's world and you're hopefully feeling connected to those guests that you want to follow what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. So that aspect hasn't changed, but what the breadth of that I cover has changed. So I, you know, my first episode I had Ashley Iaconetti, who was this girl who hilariously always cried on the bachelor. And I was like, you can't be this crazy. I, I don't believe it. Like what's your backstory? Why do you always cry? And she was great. She was my first first guest. But now I'm almost to 350 episodes. It's probably more than that, actually. Because I used to just do bonus episode and not number them because I was an idiot. So it's probably more than 350. But with the next this week, I'm going to have Julie from The Real World. And then I have the directors of the Tina Turner doc. So it's not just reality shows. It's documentaries and docu-series. So when I say docu-series... It's like a reality show, but it's not campy. It's like a longer version of a documentary, a docu-follow, also called. And it could be between four and six episodes. So reality shows, docu-series, and documentaries. And I cover every sort of topic. I'm like a big sports person, so I'll, I might be covering a 30 for 30 documentary or one about an athlete. And then I might be doing a true crime one. I might be talking about a documentary about a singer. I might be covering a reality show. There's always something new. So you're kind of like watching TV with me. It's like, um, it's like a hybrid of like, you're getting information as if you were reading books, listening to podcasts and watching movies and reading magazines in a week. I'm kind of like, infusing a bunch of different shows into two episodes now per week. So you feel like, oh my, like, I want people to walk away and go, I learned something, I was entertained, and I have homework to do. One of the things that impresses me about you is your work ethic and how committed you are to your show. Even now, as your show has become successful, it didn't start off that way. Well, no. Well, now I look back and I was like, I was so freaking hard on myself. Well, I always am, but my first episode, I was bummed because I had 2000 downloads. And I said to the audio engineer, Ray, like, I only got 2000 listens. Like, what am I going to do? And he was like, 2000 episodes is unbelievable. Yeah. 
And I do think part of that is, was because there was less competition at the time, right? So now we've, we're in like a very saturated marketplace. So it's different. But yeah, of course. I mean, and by the way, I've never had a publicist. I'm my own publicist. I've done this all myself. So if you see my my show written about in Us Weekly or Page Six or anything, it's probably me telling the, I, I spend so much of my time contacting reporters. I, every crossover episode, I've done that myself. Like, hey, I like your show. Let's do a crossover. You do this. I have done it all myself. And everybody else can do it all themselves too. Like you don't need to have a publicist and all this stuff. It is doable. But yeah, sure. No one knew who the hell I was. And that's, you know, still something that I get frustrated by because someone like you know, Dak Shepard is a movie star. So, you know, he's got access to people that I don't. And people are going to want to write about his episode right away. And I have to work infinitely harder because, you know, I was somebody who worked in legal PR. So it's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard freaking work. It's, it's hard. hard. And, unless you, and unless you love it, it's not for the faint of heart. Right. Because to create a successful show is not easy. And most people... They have fame and then they might create a podcast that sees success anyway, like the Dax Shepherds of the world. Yeah. And you sort of flip the script where you're a relative unknown. So what are the, what are the, well, B- Billy, stuff? Billy, I went to an agency in LA and my sister's friend got me this meeting with an agency a couple of years ago. I'm not going to name them, but if you DM me, I'll tell you. I went down and I'm walking in. I'm like, I'm sitting in the lobby. I'm like, I'm going to walk out of this place and they're going to sign me and I'm going to be an international superstar. They're going to be blown away by what I've created, right? Well, they basically said to me, you're doing this backwards. We rep people who are hugely famous, who have huge followings, who also do a podcast. Right. You're going backwards. Like you're known for your podcast. So they said, come back to us when you have at least 750,000 Instagram followers. I shit you not. No way. What? Yeah, it's bullshit. Walk us through some of the struggle or some of the challenges you faced. I know. And also, like, if you look at reality, I know you were sort of an early adopter from. Oh, and people made fun of me in the beginning. Oh, my God. They're like, uh, they go. I Somebody just brought this up to me. At the beginning of my podcast, people were like, how do you do? Why would somebody do a podcast about reality TV? Like, it's not that interesting. Do you have any idea how many podcasts are now about reality TV? There are about 17 about 90 Day Fiance, which by the way, not to toot my own horn, but I will. I was the first podcast that talked about 90. I said, you guys have to watch this shit show. It is unbelievable. I interviewed the executive producer. I talked, told everybody to watch it. Now there are like a million 90 Day Fiance podcasts. So yeah, it's kind of fun to be the disruptor. It's fun to be the first one to think of something. But yeah, the people were like, this is like, who is going to listen to this shit? Well, yeah, I mean, not, I mean, you not only did you not have the fame, but you were entering a market that wasn't yet fully no, nowhere near what it is today. So you're going to have the doubters and all of those people. By the way, one other funny thing is when people say, yeah, oh, reality TV, like I really don't have the time to watch TV. Like I'm so busy. Like I got five kids and I watch a ton of television. Like you want to watch something, you can find time for it. But invariably those people will later say, but I mean, I do watch B- B- Below Deck, The Bachelor. I love Netflix. I saw Tiger King, blah, blah, blah. And they're like listing for me all these things. So basically, you're watching everything that I cover, but you think you're better than me because I like I have a show about streaming media and TV and shows. It's like people, it's like in the heyday when uh, people did gossip stuff and it was like, 
you know, I don't really keep up with stuff like that. Like I'm really cerebral. I'm like above that. But then they have their opinion on why Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston broke up. It's like, well, you do have an opinion. Let's face it. There is a stigma <laughs> that exists about reality TV. And what I love yeah. about your approach is that you're like, F that. I'm like, people are watching this. Like, I, that's mainly what I watch with yeah. my wife because this is what we both like to watch together. So fun. Isn't it fun to watch it together too? Oh, it's the best. It's the best. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. Yeah, exactly. And to your point, it's a great conversation. You're at a wedding and you talk about totally. those that you yes. want, right? It's like, that's the common ground. Yes. It's, it's, you know, you and I are both people, totally. people, people uh, love of people. It's a great way to engage and have those initial conversations. Yeah. We're fun at a, a dinner party. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm like, so what are you watching? Oh my God. Let me tell you the best show. To, and oh, you're why the you best watch it. That. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> did you watch wild, wild country? Okay. It's about an eight, a cult in the eighties. And let me just tell you that it, the, the, the show starts off with a red carpet being thrown out and people playing the recorders while um, people in monochromatic outfits stand there with like medallions with the Rajneeshi on it. And he looks like he's in ZZ top and he has 125 Rolls Royces. And people are like, what the fuck did you just say? And I'm like, yeah. It's on Netflix, six part series. Come with me, friends. Like, <laughs> it's your wagon. This is a good time. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So, w- one of the things that I, I admire about your approach is your approach to research. You do extensive research. You pride yourself on yeah. making sure that you're walking into the interview well prepared. What, what is your process? Walk us through that. First thing is like you just read every article this person's been interviewed in that you can, can get. You listen to other podcasts they've been on. Um, you're always trying to find something about them that no one else has explored. And this seems small, but I just had the num- most famous star of the RuPaul's Drag Race. Most famous person. And people actually wrote me the most saying, you're the only person I've heard him open up about his family. He never really talks about it. But I found out like he was the fourth out of five kids. I have five kids. So I, was, I started ask him, asking him about it. And I wonder if maybe he opened up with me because I have five kids. So there's like a, there's something special about that. Like, oh, she gets me, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of a window into that world. And I, maybe it was the way I asked him about it. Like, is this a, sh-? sometimes people, I think it's the phrasing of a question. So people sometimes think you're judging. So maybe somebody else would have said to him, this is like a, a very like simple thing, but I think other people might have said to him, Boy, that must have been hard for you to be a, a gay man in New or like a boy who is gay in the South, and that you wanted to be a costume designer and ultimately become a drag queen. But my approach was, your family are they getting a kick out of this, or are they thinking, well, this is no shock? I'm like, he's always been a star. So, I think it's the approach of a question sometimes where. It just, it's a little bit more disarming if you approach the question with a comedic take into it or where you make them feel like they're a superstar. So that question, for example, I wanted to acknowledge that he has this big family, but they probably always knew he would be an, a, an, like a superstar versus, boy, that must have been really hard for you, you know, to be in the South and you're gay. It's a small thing, but it makes people open up in a different way if, if you think about it, a different way to approach the question. And I want to get into interviewing in a moment. And before we do, what are the ways that you find those gems that are unexplored or not talked about? Like, how do you find that kind of gold? Because I I totally get you're looking at the articles and listening to interviews, but how do you find the things that maybe others aren't tapping into? 
I also think it's just a life skill because my husband always complains that I get in conversations with people and I'm either locked and loaded for a long time, but I think you'll listen to a lot of people say in my show, I was just listening back for my Julie episode. She says two times in it, you ask really good questions or I've never been asked that before. I think it's an act of listening that a lot of people kind of miss out on. It seems really like a simple thing, but it's true. And then sometimes those nugget questions just pop up as I'm interviewing someone. Mm. I kind of think it like going back to the dinner table, you're at a big party. It's almost like I'm sitting next to you and then I scoop my chair up to get closer to you and I've got my elbow on the table. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, how did that happen? I'm like engulfing myself in someone's world. And as I'm, as I'm asking them questions, things just pop up that take me down kind of another avenue. So I don't know if you can seek those nuggets before you talk to them. I think if you do all the prep personally and about that specific interview during your research, you'll find that they'll open up and those things kind of come up as you go. Well, how, how much prep are you doing with the actual, how much prep are you doing with the actual questions versus how much end up being on the fly? I actually, I actually don't do a lot of, I, I almost never write those questions out ahead of time. Isn't that crazy? When you're interviewing, I just, are, are you no, looking at something or is it, no, you're not looking no. at anything. So you don't have notes. So it's, you do the research no. when you're doing research, do you write down things? I write things. Yeah. I write things down when I'm researching or I'm like copying a paste and I'm reading through it. And it's, I think it goes back to my memory. memory. Yeah. I mean, listen, I used to wait tables in college and I was at Tony and Joe's in Georgetown (laughs) and I would have a 10 top and I would remember my husband. People are amazed by that, right? And I could remember everybody's order. And if they came back, I go, um, I'm going to guess you want the chopped salad with the ahi tuna and you're going to want a nice tea with that. And they're like, what, what the fuck? Um, I think it just goes back to, I almost never look at notes when I interview somebody. It's because I think of it like I'm in, like I haven't seen an old friend for a really long time okay. and we're just catching up. Yeah. So I, yeah. It goes back to what you said. You're like at the table and you like get a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm like, wait, what happened? And it's about making somebody feel like a million bucks. And by the way, if I've chosen you to be a guest, I already think you are a million bucks. So it's not really hard for me to like, I'm not faking it because yeah. I'm really interested in you and the show, what that show means for pop culture, you know, the pop culture vernacular. So I'm already invested. And also I have so much like de- like in my brain from years and years and years of watching sure. that it's not like I have to do all this research sometimes before a show because I already have an understanding of the, uh, of a show from like, if I interview somebody from the bachelor, I'm, and then they, let's say they became the bachelor, but they were once a contestant on the bachelorette. Like I already have working knowledge of scenes they were in or who they've been dating afterwards because I'm just reading things all the time. So, you know, it's just sort of like, um, waxing the car <laughs> before the interview. Well, how, how does the humor part find its way? I mean, is that something that just naturally you've always been a funny person? Yeah. I'm like very sarcastic. I think that I I'm pretty good, especially with certain guests. Like I can, I I think I have a good way of ribbing someone where it's kind of disarming where they kind of like let, let themselves go a little bit more when making jokes and making them feel less. They like, they don't have to be as contained, make somebody feel opened that they can open up. And I, 
feel like they make it they it makes them feel like this is a fun interview. Like they're not going to be stiff. Stiff or judged. And I do a fair amount of ribbing, like um, <laughs> ribbing of them. Like, hey, like if I have somebody, fr- yeah, like I have somebody from Ninety Day Fiance, I'll just go, like, cut the shit with me. You really thought this was going to work out? He lives in another country. Like, you have to use a translator app. Like, come on. Like, what planet were you living on? And then they start laughing. They're like, okay, you're right. I mean, in hindsight, it was really stupid. But I swear to you, Kate, like. I was in love. I was vulnerable. And then I go into, but why were you vulnerable? And then, you know, then it's like, well, I, in my first relationship, I was in an abusive relationship. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's walk through that. And then I've had so many guests where I end up feeling like their life coach at the end. So I'm like, listen, you're never going to choose an idiot like this ever again. You're right. And they're like, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not going to. I'm like, because I will come to your house and I will smack you with frying pan because this is ridiculous. You're worth more. Like I had somebody from um, Love After Lockup and she chose somebody, she was in a relationship with somebody who was in jail. And by the end of it, I'm like, I want you to understand because I'm funny, but I'm also like a very strong person and I want the best for people and I'm a mom. So I just was saying, and I'm a women's school graduate, four daughters, you can imagine. So I, I had this whole conversation with her, like, I need you to understand that you are worth more than this. You are a young woman. You have the rest of your life ahead of you. Why are you giving away your power to somebody who does not deserve it? And then she's like, I know you're right. And then people will write me like, you were right. You said that. I keep in touch with so many people that I've interviewed. One person I interviewed a couple of years ago, she just wrote me a note today. I wanted to be one of the first people to tell you that I'm pregnant. Wow. So yeah, like I keep in touch all the time. It's great. Well, the other interesting- I care about these people. Do. I really do. I do. do. And the other thing though is like, let's face it, when they're on these shows- the editing sometimes isn't kind mm-hmm. to them. And so you're right. giving them a chance to redeem themselves after the fact. You're the dessert. You're giving them a chance to share who they really are, maybe answer some of the questions as to why they did X, Y, or Z, and yeah. give a little bit more context that is going to allow them to maybe be perceived in a different light than they would be if they mm-hmm. just took the show itself and, and looked at that, which I think is really, really interesting. Well, you've heard me say that too, where I, I, when I'm trying to get a guest, I'll say, look, you look like a one-dimensional person on television. People think you are this way. I don't believe it. Right. Come on my show. Let's chat about it. I want you to walk away feeling great about it. And I want my listeners to go, huh, I never thought of it that way. I never saw them that way. So basically taking a one-dimensional person and making them three-dimensional. Well, one of the things that I know you've highlighted, and I fully agree with this, is as a podcaster, you need to really find your unique voice. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your own voice if, if somebody didn't know you? Or, or maybe how would somebody else describe your voice that really knows how you show up on your podcast? Infinitely interested, funny clever. I think all those things. I found that over the years, people come back and they say how smart I am, which I really appreciate and powerful. I think I'm a powerful voice. I've done a lot of really good episodes about social justice issues. I had um, the brother of Khalif Browder from the Netflix story about Khalif Browder on my show. We talked about wrongful imprisonment. I've had um, women who've been the victims of domestic abuse who have been highlighted or so many documentaries and docuseries about molestation and sexual abuse. So I feel like I've really given voice to other people and amplified them. And I think I'm a very, I have a strong voice that way. And I really encourage people to look at a story from all different sides and, and understand through the lens 
other people look through story at stories. So I do think maybe in the beginning of my show, it was more about like, how hard can I make you laugh? And I am really funny, but I also want people to think, you know, a lot of, I just, when I did the Amanda Knox interview, there were so many people that wrote me and said, I had actually written this person off. I thought she was a murderer and she wasn't worth my time. And I listened to your show and now I realize it's completely wrong. And it's making me rethink wrongful imprisonment. And I'm going to listen to her show all the time now. And I actually have screenshot so many of those and sent it to her. Yeah. And said, see, people believe in you. Like, what your voice is powerful. Keep talking. I know that, you know, what you've been through is enormously painful. But they're coming around. And now we're at a time in our world where we're beginning to understand wrongful imprisonment. So I do feel like the longer it goes on, it's shifting more. And so... Uh, as an aside, I'm now moving into television producing. And I think what's great about it is that I don't know if I had like brought my suitcases to Hollywood, like I want to make some shows. Had I not had this experience for five years, if I'd gone from media consulting for global law firms and told the, you know, the networks or whatever production companies, I love reality shows. I love unscripted TV and I want to make something. They'd be like, I think get the hell out of here. Like, what are you talking about? But I've developed such a strong voice in unscripted television that people really look to me as having my finger on the pulse. So I know it works. I mean, I, I'm developing one show and it has to do with romance. And um, my producing partner is just constantly laughing. Like, you remember so much crazy stuff from all these shows. Like, I'm downloading different shows. And I think I'm a very valuable person now. And Unscripted, I've gone a unique way. And it's also a great lesson for people who want to go into their second or third careers. You know, just because you don't have background in the entertainment industry, you didn't work the mailroom or whatever it is. Like, you, you, can find your, up, yeah. you can find your unique way. Who would have thought podcasting would make people move into, you know, by the way, when I started, people thought it was like a pop cast. I'd show people at the grocery store. This is how you find it on I your, saw phone. your YouTube video where you're like explaining how you do it. Because people had no idea. Yeah. And now it's purple like, so great. click on this purple yeah. icon. And now it's totally changed. And, and some of the assholes in the beginning who were like, mm, okay, podcaster, now they're asking me for advice. And I just think, boy, this has come full circle. One Never the- put down someone's job. Because you might want it. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that's interesting is you're you're an advocate for your audience, but you're also an advocate for the guest, and you're an advocate for the industry of reality TV. And so you're, I am. You're doing all those things. Another cool thing at Clubhouse is that I'm in all these rooms with network uh, network people oh, I, for Unscripted. I bet. I bet. And it's really satisfying, gratifying when they're like, "Oh my God, Casey, so you're in the room. Thank you so much for what you do for our business." Wow. That's pretty pretty cool. That's amazing. And I'm sure it's yeah. networking. So I want to talk about two more things. I want to talk about guests and landing guests because mm-hmm. let's face it, you're bringing on celebrities and you're bringing on people that may be more challenging to, to land. What's your approach? What are the do's and don'ts? And I guess we could look at about it from pr- the perspective of you as the host, but I'm also curious what you've seen other people do to try and get you to be on their show and what you've seen either go wrong or, mm-hmm. or, or go right. Oh, we, you know, I've heard you, you've heard me talk about some of this. Okay. For me to go after a guest, you just have to be fearless. You have to make people feel like you think of, they are the most interesting person in the world. And you have to tell them you're not going to take much of their time because really successful people don't have a lot of time. So I always uh, tell them, I'm not going to take more than 20 minutes of your time. Now, if it's a really great interview, it might go longer, Mm -hmm. you know, but 
for successful people, when someone approaches and they're like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to need an hour. And they're like, fuck, an hour is like a long time. So, and maybe it's because of what the, the space that I'm in TV, that it's easier for me to get that in a short amount of time, but I never ask for too much time. I tell them I would love to talk about the project they're working on and highlight it because in my, in my space, that's really powerful for me to be highlighting the sure. project that they're working on. They're going to get more downloads. Um, and I also compliment them. I talk about what their career has meant to me. They're invariably people that have either created, if they're the filmmakers, they've worked on other projects that I've watched. If it's a talent, I'm going to tell them how much I've enjoyed the project that they've worked on. I want to tell a different side of their story. I don't know. I, I work the angles. It's like dating. You say, I'm looking for this guest. Can anybody help me? <laughs> totally. I have no shame. Like, hey, Noah, my friend Noah Pollock, who I ended up interviewing, he works in unscripted TV as a filmmaker or an executive, excuse me. And I have no shame. I'm like, Noah, this person, I really am dying to talk to. Do you know anybody who knows them? And he's so awesome. He's like, well, I don't, but I know so-and-so does, you know, Okay, I, I figure out all my angles. I'm looking through their LinkedIn's. Okay, I I interviewed these brothers who made this unbelievable 9/11 documentary. I think everybody saw it. It was on CBS. A whole other level. And they they're French and they're mm-hmm. under they're they're like off the grid. They're really hard to find. And I, it took me like three months to find them. But it was like, do you know this person? Do you know this person? I was like, oh. And then I reached out to my audience. I do that all the time, guys. I'm dying to talk to this person. Does anybody have any questions? Really? Or, okay. or does anybody know them? Or is anybody associated with this case? And they're so happy to help me because they feel like they're part of the story. Sure. Like I don't, but like I wanted Julie from the real world. I found out somebody in my who is my listener lives on her street. So I talk, joke about it in my interview with Julie. I'm like, you know, one of my listeners lives down your street, and I told them to bring over some cupcakes. But I think she was afraid, you know, uh, that I sounded crazy. And she, and Julie said. I wonder which one it is. And I said, well, just tell them I'm not crazy. Oh my but yeah, people are all trying to help. I want to talk real quickly about beliefs that you have. What are some of the things that you have like a strong belief in? I know one thing, like for example, is, you know, nothing is really handed to you and, mm-hmm. and, you know, not playing that comparison game, but what are some of like the strong beliefs and you could tap into those or anything else that you like believe at your core is fundamental to not only your mindset, but the success that you've had. Work harder than anybody else. Like I said, be the last person to leave, be the first one there. Just work hard. Never expect a handout. Collaborate. Collaboration is so vital. I never look at somebody as competition. I look at them as an opportunity to collaborate with. I believe you can only grow the market when you collaborate with people. That's right. So that's a fundamental belief of mine. I believe in the power of storytelling that everybody deserves to have their story heard. I believe at the core of it, everybody wants to feel like they matter in the world. And that if you give them the space to talk about themselves, that you will learn more about them and yourself in the process. Never devalue someone who is just starting out because we were all there, Mm -hmm. you know? And that if you are gracious and kind to people, that it, the universe repays you handsomely. Yes. Uh, and the collaboration piece, I'm so, I'm so with you. you and I love how you compare that to competition, just switch. It's, it starts with the C, but it's different. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of the collaboration and I want to think a little bit about, or talk a little bit about how you approach 
promotion and com- cultivating your audience. I know you have a really successful Facebook page. I know that you're constantly tweeting when shows are playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's a, a bunch of things that you're doing proactively to really engage your audience. Can you share a little bit of the inner workings of what's worked best and how you've approached mm-hmm. it or even how it's evolved over time? So Facebook groups are great. It's a great way to share information, to get people excited about episodes, um, especially if there's like a breaking story for me in the television space. People get so excited about it and they want to go there to chat with somebody. So that's been always great. Twitter has always been useful in promotion of episodes and engaging in conversation with potential new listeners. Clubhouse has been really great too, because I think that it's kind of invaded the algorithm. <laughs> like I've definitely found new listeners because of it, which is great. Definitely guests too. I think for me, a big part of it is also for my show is the media part. So I'm constantly giving them scoops on who's next on my show. If all the sound bites that they've, the most interesting sound bites with the marker time of when it occurred. So I'm writing up a whole pitch. So it makes it very easy for the reporter to kind of cover my episode. So I've had a tremendous success with the media and that's been a big part too. Truthfully, also just the crossover episodes, working with other podcasters, you know, it's easier to grow within platform. Yes. So collaborating with other podcasters is really, and I also do a lot of crossovers with different kinds of shows. So I do a lot with true crime podcasts where I'll go on theirs and they'll go on mine and people, I have to see people really appreciate that I've always been a supporter of other podcasters. It's really just a bad look when someone, you know, even in my Facebook group, there are a lot of Facebook groups that have this policy, like don't talk about another podcast in my group. They're kind of, it's kind of this mentality, like this group is about me and my show and what's going on. And I don't want anybody to talk about anybody else, but that goes back to like, I don't think anybody's my competition. So I welcome because I want people to feel confident in me and I'm confident myself. So just because you're suggesting someone else's show, that doesn't have anything to do with like how I operate. So I think people in my space, if you would interview them, they would say, Kate is like everyone's, well, they would call me an OG, <laughs> but they would all always say, I set a great precedent. I set a great precedent by reminding people like, we're all going to be more successful if we all work with each other and to uplift people and support them and edify them because it just cream rises to the top. It doesn't serve any of us to, you know, keep anyone down. So that's like a fundamental belief of mine. I think I've had great success that way. Social media is a very important aspect of my podcast. Okay. You have five kids. Uh-huh. You have a successful podcast. You're active mm-hmm. on Clubhouse, which you can't outsource that. You're kind mm-hmm. of a one-man band, as you've described. I don't know. What, I am. I don't know what your team, if you have a team for anything. but I, have an audio, I just have an audio engineer. Yeah. So, okay. So how do you design? I mean, we could either do a day in the life or just like how you allocate your time. I mean, how are you figuring out? Is it like, mm-hmm. are you super organized? Do you make lists? Like what's your approach to managing mm-hmm. the workload? How, how do you do it all? I wouldn't say I'm a little, I'm not really a list person. I'm just, it's like stored in, in my brain. I'm just really good at multitasking. I'm just very good at finding pockets of time for things. 
And I, everything I do all day long is multitasking. So when I'm watching a show, I'm doing it. It's the same time that I'm working out. I'm on my Peloton. I don't listen to the instructor. I mean, I follow the prompts, but I'm watching mm-hmm. Q in the storm on HBO about QAnon. So I'm banging out two things at once. If I'm driving the kids to school, I'm listening in Clubhouse. If I'm watching a docu-series uh, in, in the office, then I'm also writing up pitch letters as I do it. So everything I do, I'm doing two, at least two things at once all yeah. the time. I'm making dinner. I'm listening to a podcast, potential guest. There's nothing I'm doing throughout the day that I'm not doing two things at once. I'm at my son's basketball or baseball practice, dropping off or sitting and watching the game. I'm listening to something. I'm reading something. Mm, and that multiplies yourself. It's like you have two of you if you're, right. if you're able to do that effectively. Okay. So, yeah. so I thank you, first of all, so much for all of this credible insight and to your life and to your career as a podcaster. You mentioned that you're going to be producing, like what else is in the future for you? What are the things that are getting exciting as you look forward to the next five, 10 years? Is it right. producing shows? Is it writing more books? Is it making your show reach this certain level? Like, What do you see the future holding? I'm working on a couple of TV projects. One is in the business space having to do with women. And another is a romance show. I have another project I'm working on about um, a great rescue story during the Vietnam War. I would love to do some more public speaking having to do with women. And I floated the idea with somebody about starting a podcast network for, uh, for women. So I would say the overarching thing is the female story is really my, um, my North star. So projects that have to do with that. Also, I'd love to be on the today show as an ongoing expert. I'm like what to watch this week. There you go. So that's kind of like a dream for me. I just, I'm excited about the idea of just continuing to collaborate with different people, because I think also when you collaborate, you figure out things that you never expected. I mean, I did stand up because somebody asked me to just open for them. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I always thought I'd be great at it. So, all right. And then I did it. And I was like, this was awesome. Like I could do this a million different times. So you never know where something might pop up. I'd love to write a book. You know, there are lots of things I'd love to do. Well, I love all of those things. And I have no doubt that you could do all of that and more For those who want to find you, I know the easiest place to just type in Reality Life with Kate Casey, but I also know you have a Patreon uh, where people could get even more behind the scenes. Oh, Patreon's good. Yeah. Oh, my my Patreon's good. Tell us us about it. It's good. Like I had my friend Lo, we did behind the scenes of celebrity styling, which that was really juicy. Another one is my friend Steven's a celebrity wedding planner. We talk about behind the scenes. Then I just had my friend Taria on and we talked about race and reality shows. And that was really fascinating. I mean, so many, I mean, I'm obsessed with stories about society, like the upper echelon of society. So I do a lot of deep dives on Vanity Fair stories or lots of true crime. So it's like, it, like it's more dessert for you. Um, so the Patreon's great. It's patreon.com backslash Casey. And then I, I'm always on Twitter. I love Twitter. A lot of people hate it. I think it's freaking awesome. At Kate Casey. My Instagram is at Kate Casey CA. Clubhouse at Kate Casey. I'm around. People can find me. DM me. Let's do it. Make this dream happen. Let's do it. And, and, and last question <laughs> for you, Kate, is if you could give one piece of advice to a brand new podcaster that's just starting out, mm-hmm. what would that advice be? God, there's so many things. Uh, first, I want you to know 
that I always think of myself as the bottom of the hill. And I think that's essential. Anybody that considers it like I've done it, I like I'm killing it. You have to have a little fire in your belly. Mm -hmm. And so always think of yourself at the bottom of the hill and I'm going to climb my way to the top. I think that will serve you Im like immensely. I think you have to be tenacious. You have to be creative and you got to outwork everybody and you have to be willing to um, cross enemy lines. I don't know, not enemy lines, but you know, I love to go on sports podcasts to talk about sports documentaries. Like don't be afraid to jump to somebody else's show. Like even if their show's called like Pancakes and Waffles, go, hey, I'd love to collaborate with you. I love pancakes and waffles. <laughs> Your show's called Roller Skating at Night and, you know, with a knife. Sure, let's talk about it. Because conversations are fun, collaborations are fun, and it's the really, you got to get yourself out there. So for, for somebody with a new show, just figure out a way to get in front of as many people as you can. Mm -hmm. Beautiful advice and so grateful for all of the insights and now you're making me hungry. I'm uh, I, I can't <laughs> eat pancakes or waffles right now because I'm not, you know, but I'm gonna go grab something to eat after this. Kate, thank you so much for being on for the love podcast. Really appreciate your time. Isn't it funny to see each other in real time? It is. It's it is. It's like because I always talk to you. Well, I'll see. You, I'll see you on those clubhouse streets and looking yeah. forward to the clubhouse streets. I love it. More opportunities to chat and and learn. And you you are a great example of, of being somebody that does what you do in a way where it's not, you're not relying on a million people to support you. You are taking aggressive action and it's because you have the fire in your belly that allows you to not ever feel like you've made it. Like always feel like you have yeah. to keep going. And that right there is a, is a huge testament to you and why you've had the success that you've had that you're not you're not, you're not satisfied. You're, you're going to keep, you're going to keep going. And that's why I know your show will continue to succeed. And I can't wait to see all the other things that you work on. So really appreciate. Thank you, Billy. I appreciate that. Stop. Don't leave yet. If you made it this far, please listen for just one more minute because I have something to tell you. I can't tell you how much it means that you took the time to listen. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode. So what do I want to tell you? I want to let you know that I'm here to serve you. If you have suggestions, ideas, possible guests, show topics, anything you'd like me to cover on future episodes, please let me know by sending feedback to for the love of podcast forward slash feedback. I want this to be a two-way street, not just me talking. I want to know what you want from this show. Ultimately, you will help decide what this show is and how it best serves you to make better podcasts. If you like this show, let me be blunt. The best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platforms. This is so important and it will help so much, especially during these early days as the show gets started. One more ask, please consider sharing this show with your friends on social media to help spread the word. All right, that's it. Until next time, please remember everything we do, we do it for the love of podcasts.
Thank you, Billy. I appreciate that.